Welcome to the Opposition with Dan Knight, where we tackle the tough issues and speak with the key players in Canadian politics. In this episode, we dive into the aftermath of the Freedom Convoy protest with expert guests, including convoy lawyers Ava Chipiak and Keith Wilson, former Minister of Agriculture Jerry Ritz, and investigative reporter Andy Lee. Recorded on February 19th, 2023, this is the first part of our two-part series, which will be available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Join us for an insightful conversation on the implications of the POEC report and the future of Canadian democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one thing that I was kind of reading about the at the report, it was at the beginning of it, and they kind of talk about the limitations of the freedom of assembly and the freedom to protest. And what kind of was interesting about that is this is not the first time we've had protests. And that's why I kind of brought Jerry on the on the panel, because Jerry's had under uh, Harper, he had several, there were several pro- protests. So I was kind of like to talk to Jerry about his experiences with protests while he was in office. Hey, Jerry, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Dan. Uh, yeah, we had, you know, an uncounted number of protests. Um, they were always, uh, you know, I mean, I don't remember anything breaking out, but I, I do remember a lot of protests with snipers on rooftops around. Uh, getting ready, uh, thousands of people on the hill. Some some of them went for three or four days, um, but I don't remember anything of the scope and the welcome uh, of the city of Ottawa that the trucker convoy got. That's all been downplayed in this report, uh, and that's that's unfortunate. Uh, a lot more media attention, more balanced media attention on all of those. It was always our fault, of course, but at the end of the day, I mean, they didn't uh, they didn't hesitate to report on this, and I looked at at the reporting from a lot of the re- so-called top-shelf reporters that I've known for years. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous what they were trying to get people to say. They would always find someone. Uh, you remember the the uh, building that the doors were changed and a, chained and a fire was started? They tried to run with that, even when it was disproven that it had nothing to do with the uh, convoy at all. And it just went on and on and on. Uh, you know, there's still people complaining that they are having PTSD because of the horn honking and so on. And other people said, I loved it. Uh, police officer after police officer have said crime was down. Uh, there was less problems with homeless people and everything else. The businesses that stayed open all said, that, you know, the, the trucker folks and, and people that were with them came in and helped us mop floors and, you know, were just a gracious uh, bunch of people. So I, I agree with Andy. There's a lot in this report that the media is not talking about. It's 2,000 pages long, and I'm sure the experts, uh, Keith and Eva, have, will go through it with a fine-tooth comb again after the fact. But I can't for the life of me understand how Rolo wasn't recused from making you know, judgments on this. I mean, his liberal background and, of course, uh, his, his relationship with the Trudeau family are, are completely underscored. I, I think the best line coming out of the whole thing was the incompetence of government led us to this. And I'll just leave it at that for this time. Jerry, you, would, you can speak for this. I mean, you had the UN summit under Harper. Mm-hmm. There was the provincial, you know, with the federal government, there was a cooperation between the federal government and the provincial government. That was never an issue with Harper. No, uh, I mean, the city, city of Toronto, well, that was Bill Blair at that time, and the uh, provincial police, the RCMP, every other police force you can think of had their fingers in the cookie jar looking for everything that they could get their hands on when we had the both G7, G7 up at the lakes and then the G20 in in Toronto itself there were areas set aside for protest certainly they couldn't get 
right into the center of town. But I remember a lot of things that went sideways, and that was, you know, point the fingers pointed right back to Bill Blair, and here he is again. Yeah, it's kind of, I always found that it was interesting that Bill Blair is kind of covering for the federal government. One thing I kind of noticed about the POEC report is they talk about the Project Hendon uh, briefing, and it says it's the joint intelligence led by the OPP, the Provincial Operations Intelligence Bureau, um, and it basically collects information and speaks about threats to um, the country. Would the federal government be briefed on this report? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, are, we have uh, access to all of those types of things. The problem that you have right in within the parliamentary precinct, there are several different layers of, of officialdom, uh, policing and so on, and they don't even talk to each other. Uh, case in point, when the riflemen stormed the hill and we were all under siege there for about 10 hours, well, they figured out who was going to take charge and how it was going to work. Uh, and that, you know, that uh, Keystone Cops is still a, the rule of the law there today. This isn't the si first time we've had the size and scope of this protest. I lost a lot of what you said, but the basic thrust I got was they all knew this was coming. They knew the size and scope of it, and they all ignored it. Um, and that's absolutely true. Uh, I mean, there were people from all across Canada by the millions, literally, that came out to wave as they drove on through all across Canada, from the East Coast to the West Coast and every place in between. So the reception was unbelievable. And I think the biggest sin committed here by the Freedom Convoy folks was they embarrassed Mr. Trudeau. Uh, I mean, how many times can you get COVID and hide in your cottage uh, when people come to town to talk to you? Um, you know, this whole, whole idea, and I see Minnie Singh talking about they were there to overthrow the government. There was never any instance of that. There were a couple of different sheets of paper that were tossed around that the media got their hands on. Who knows who planted them? Not unlike the Nazi flag and the Confederate flag. Uh, I mean, we still haven't searched out that truck with the license plate number on it. Uh, so there, this was just a, 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 a gong show. I can't say. I was going to ask Keith and Eva on. It was really interesting. And what I just wanted to touch on what Jerry was saying for a second. Um, and I'm looking at the report. And so um, they said that they started monitoring the convoy on January 19th. Um, but it was worth noting on January 25th that senior officials from the Office of the National Security Intelligence Agency of Canada approached the government of Canada to say that they had concerns that their reports contained a gap because they didn't include RCMP threat assessments. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting, given the scope of this um, movement and how massive it was. And, and there was a lot of intelligence out there that... Um, the government of Canada was sort of called out for not assessing that threat properly. Um, and given the fact that, you know, the findings, again, you know, most of us in this room probably don't find the findings favorable, but the, the findings weren't um, unfavorable really in my eyes either. They didn't give a glowing review of the government and what the government did. Basically they said that, you failed to, um, you know, address this from the get-go. So I found that that was an important point is that it seemed like at the beginning, um, you know, before the convoy even hit Ottawa, there was massive failures within the government to even do a proper assessment um, and to, you know, secure the sort of resources they would need to deal with a protest of this um, magnitude 
Um, and so that was that was something that was sort of striking to me. And maybe Keith and Eva can can, um, you know, dissect that a little bit better than than what I did. But I, I found that really, really striking. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for having us on here. Um, you know, we we um, early on in the inquiry, as we had various police officials testify, it the theme of incompetence, of failure to communicate, of siloing, of territorialism, of infighting, of personalities, of egos, you know, it was really, as I'm sure it was for you guys observing online, um, almost like you tuned into some brand new soap opera, but, you know, a tragic one. So we really almost became numb. That's what I was trying to say. We've almost became numb to the level of incompetence that we witnessed. I still remember one funny moment where one of their reasons why they didn't feel they could have amassed the force of police they needed in a timely manner was their lack of logistical capability to uh, to feed all the police. And I was sitting with Tamara in the hearing room and she whispered in the ear, my ear, she goes, they just should have asked me. <laughs> you know, and the truckers would have fed all the police. So um, I just, you know, Eva and I think are a little bit numb to the incompetence because it happened on so many levels. Uh, the OPP was definitely an anomaly in that they seemed to suffer from the incompetence least. They met the convoy when it crossed from west to east in uh, um, from Manitoba into Ontario. They had already launched, you know, Operation Hendon, their code word. They were gathering intelligence. Um, so that would be some of my higher level comments about uh, the police and, and how they interacted. Yeah, so maybe I'll just add a little bit too to that. And I think it was Gary that said that um, the OP, it, that um, clearly there was information through the Hendon report, which really was... Um, from what we learned, the best intelligence that um, the, uh, any police authority was able to obtain, and that was created through the OPP. And they were the ones that were saying it as loud as possible and to as many people as possible that um, the people coming to Ottawa are not coming for a weekend. They're coming for a long time. And they are coming across the country and expect them to stay longer. But what was interesting, it doesn't seem to be that other police agencies accepted that information, um, found that information out from themselves. So their intelligence, for one reason or another, based on I'm not sure what was different. So the Ontario Ottawa Police Service, for example, was suggesting even at the inquiry that the protesters were just coming for the weekend and they would pack up on Sunday or Monday and leave. On what information, we're still not sure. So that's one thing that if if people were listening maybe to the most credible information, that would be right. But And I can't recall at this stage what the RCMP said, but um, I believe it was more with, it'll be over on the weekend. Um, and with respect to all of this incompetence, it, it really is a sad day for Canada to see how on every level of government and every police authority that was in Ottawa to see the level of incompetence. And, and I'm 
happy to hear at least that we're using that word because now we know there's a problem and it needs to be addressed. What I heard though at the inquiry a lot of is, well, we didn't have enough resources and these government officials and police agencies thought that, well, maybe if we just got a few more million dollars, it would be better. But that's not how it works in reality. Yeah. If, it, if the system is incompetent and the leadership, for example, is incompetent, throwing some more money at the problem isn't going to solve the problem. So I hope that people, when they're reviewing the report, can see that these issues are loud and clear and blaring at us Canadians that there are significant issues that need to be changed and it's a high time to start changing them. Yeah, Ava, I was kind of, you know, touching on what you were saying about their plan. I mean, I'm, I'm reading a little bit of a note here and it says the OPS operational plan still did not contain a contingency plan. And this is from the POEC report, the summary report, and the plan to address prolonged protest. Inspector Lud Lucas was stated he was praying for really cold weather. That was their plan. I mean, it's 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 absurd. I mean, the, the incompetence of the police department of the from the provincial to the federal level is just blaring if that's what you're preparing for is really cold weather and that kind of moves into my my question to andy andy you were on the boots to the ground when that was happening and i've heard you say in the past that the government knew this convoy was coming they knew they were in for the long haul can you comment on that yeah i was gonna i was gonna just say yeah it's it's sort of bonkers because in the the poet the report it actually says on sunday january 30th officials within the emergency preparedness secretariat watch the press conference held by convoy organizers. As a result of the press conference, the PCO then realized that the protesters were not leaving Ottawa. So, I mean, if this was the intelligence that they were relying on, like, we're already in Ottawa, right? Like, we're there. Like, we're already in Ottawa. And this is what they were relying on, um, you know, to prepare for a protest is a press conference given by the organizers. I mean, that information was out there weeks before that. Um, and, you know, like I said, I, I joined the convoy in Calgary on the very early days. And there was a lot of I, I did that because there was a lot of rumors out there as to the size of it. Some people were saying it was a dozen truckers. Um, there were some wild numbers out there that were saying there were, there were 50,000 truckers. Um, so I went to see for myself and I gave an interview with the Western Standard after that meeting. Um, and I said, you know what, there's not, um, you know, there's not 50,000. There's not a dozen. There's a couple of hundred here in Calgary, um, but that's enough to cause significant issues to the city of Ottawa. Um, we don't need 50,000 truckers. If what is just in Calgary today goes to Ottawa, that's going to cause significant issues. And it's going to be a very, very significant protest, and it will be unprecedented um, in Canadian history. And so that was information that was out there a week before. So, I mean, for this report to say that the PCO didn't get any information on this before January 30th, when we're already there, it is just crazy. It's just, I mean, incompetence doesn't begin to explain that. And sorry, I'm just going to jump in because I see a comment um, suggesting that advocating for more police competence in terms of them getting ahead of the convoy and preventing it entirely or shutting it down sooner. And 
I can speak for myself, but I don't think that's at all anything that I would be advocating. It's competence in order to ensure that there's a lawful, peaceful, civil protest where dialogue between adults and citizens and government is encouraged in Ottawa while what you saw on social media, it was, you know, quite a good time there. Apparently there were hot tubs, which I have to say, I never, I never witnessed them myself, but Canadians didn't come to Ottawa to uh, park their cars on the street and have a party. They gave, they came to peacefully protest, make a statement, hopefully have a dialogue with the government of Canada and make themselves known express themselves because we have the right to do that so that's the competence i think everyone on this call is talking about at least speaking for myself that's it on on that point there was a lot of discussion around should the prime minister put himself out there or not uh would it be secure or not and at the very same time we all remember the big photographs of him with he and his entourage going out into the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement, taking a knee and bowing his head and, you know, going through all the motions, that was all fine. And there was no security problems or concerns there, but he couldn't go out and talk to everyday Canadians that came to see him on the Hill. I, I find that as a, as a real chasm that can't be addressed. Well, didn't he have COVID there, Jerry? I, I remember him having COVID early on. Um, uh, Jerry, is that you, you spoke about you were in the, you had the UN conference and that there was like this, the, restriction for the protesters they had to protest in certain areas do you mind like elaborating on that a little bit this protest versus past protests do you mind expanding on that sure well that you know the the boots on the ground thing was was bill blair in the city of toronto it wasn't us uh that was his jurisdiction uh he assured that security would be held up you know upheld and all that kind of stuff they they, they wanted a billion dollars and, and i think it was evan made the comment if they just got a few more million dollars they could have address the logistics it's always about the money it's always about budgets and and that's unfortunate because if you're prepared for something like this the budgets are already in place and i understand this was outside of the realm of what they've been used to deal with but these these guys aren't short of money you know for other issues that they want to address but in that case it was a billion dollar package that was the security all around um you know, up the lakes where the where the G7 took on, uh, there was fencing put up, there was, you know, patrols moving and all that kind of stuff. Not unlike Kananaskis and other things where the army was involved. I mean, those types of things were, were set up because they knew it was coming. This one, they knew it was happening for days and weeks in advance and did nothing to prepare for it. And, and I think that's, that's what really led to the incompetence was it, it was a comedy of errors before it even happened. And... You know, they, they made such a big thing about the potential of problems that the convoy would bring after they were on the ground, but they didn't address the potential when they knew days and weeks in advance that this was coming and how big it was going to get. They were well, they were well warned. But, you know, with the G20 and the G7, we had dates and times and everything else worked out. And they had the same thing with this trucker convoy. So there are instances out there to, to build on, to, to mimic, to parrot. Uh, they didn't lack for equipment and manpower and so on and i mean god there's all kinds of restaurants downtown it's not hard to feed people you know it was just just the keystone cops i i can't believe 
the day after day after day incompetence that went on. It was just unbelievable. So Trudeau went into hiding with his COVID positive test the day that he received his first briefing, and that was on January 26th from RCMP Commissioner Lucky, who, of course, has now um, resigned in, in disgrace. Um, so that was the day that, that he decided to go and, um, and that was the day that he was warned that there could be significant disruptions in Ottawa. And yeah, I mean, just about the foresight, and I'm not going to say which, um, which government officials, but when I was putting out early videos of the convoy, that is when we were in Calgary and Saskatchewan, some of those videos, and of course, unfortunately, my, um, you know, my Twitter account was shut down, um, but some of those videos were liked by members of parliament. Um, so that was the you know pre-arrival of the convoy so i mean to say that nobody knew until january 30th that the protesters weren't leaving i mean all that information was out there and like it it was just it, it was so accessible right it was so accessible and like i said it wasn't just people who followed me it was actually members of parliament were aware that this was coming um, so, you know, I, I really have to question some of what this report says and, and the accuracy of it. Um, and I have to realize that Rouleau did the best that he had with the information that he was given. But I think that the one of the glaring um, shortcomings in this report, by my eyes, is that I don't know if he went outside or how much outside of the information that he was given to do his own research to come to these conclusions in his report, um, you know, I feel like he only relied to the testimony that was put in front of his face. And I feel like a lot of that testimony was perhaps not 100% accurate, or they didn't reach out to all the resources that had the information um, early on that they could have brought forward as witnesses in favor of putting up um, witnesses that maybe favored the government instead. So that, that's my take on, on what happened in the report. Yeah, Andy, I was kind of looking at that POEC report too, and I kind of saw a little bit of the same thing. And it's funny that you say that he didn't use resources outside of um, the hearing commission. But what I find kind of interesting is that his conclusion is from scholar reports that weren't submitted um, into the commission. And Keith, you can probably co comment on that better than anyone. Um, do you mind uh, speaking about that? Sure, a few things. One is, uh, I think Andy's right. Um, you know, we started getting suspicious, I don't know, week two or three, probably week two of the inquiry, when we were working hard to, we had a list of 27 witnesses that we felt the commission needed to hear from to inform him himself and get a proper conclusion on the facts. And what we ended up with of those people on that list six or seven so you know and, and understand we did not control the witness list at all all we could do is propose witnesses and accept the decision of the commissioner as to whether he called them or not um so yeah there was and as time went on we're like okay wait a minute here it was like all right somebody looks trying to build a narrative but just for a minute i want to go back to something that jerry and Dan were talking about because it's I think it's really important and I don't know it's ever been said publicly before and I'm allowed to share this is early on when Eva and I arrived on the ground we arrived on February 2nd and it was probably I would say the Thursday or the Friday and we were in one of the big meeting rooms with all the various truck captains and and convoy leaders and 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 Tom Marazzo and Danny Bulford 
And Tom and Danny were very concerned about the level of tension and the rising levels of tension. And we were really concerned, as many were, everybody from Jordan Peterson on down, that, you know, something was going to rupture and all of a sudden we were going to have a very serious, you know, use of force on both sides. So we were we were very eager to open up lines of dialogue and to bring down the, the level of, of tensions. When parties are talking, they tend not to go kinetic. But when they're not talking, they can go kinetic at any time. And for people don't know what that means. It's use force. So, but, you know, this mentioned a few minutes ago about a meeting with the prime minister. I remember we, we first discussed um, how we could bring down the temperature at the, on the police chief and at the municipal level and how we could open up through an open up of dialogue, but also at the federal level. And I still remember looking around the boardroom table and I had no desire to be in a room with the prime minister to just be straight up candid. I just find him to be such a, a terrible person, a terrible leader, and has done so much harm to Canada and so many people I know. I just didn't even want to, you know, like grace him with my presence. I just had no desire. So I didn't share that initially. I just kept that to myself. And I remember saying, well, you know, if we were to meet with the federal government, who would you guys like to meet with? Would you like to meet with the prime minister? And everybody in the room as we went around the table said, I don't want to meet with him. So we never asked to meet with the prime minister because nobody wanted to. Um, and so what we discussed was, well, what about a cabinet minister? Yeah, we thought that would be a, a, an appropriate level of dialogue. We even indicated that we would be willing to meet with a deputy minister. So there was actually never an ask to meet with the prime minister because nobody in the room had enough respect for the guy to even meet with them. That may be a terrible reality, but it was the reality. So it wasn't like we said, here's the deal. Um, the protesters want a meeting with the prime minister or, or that's it. That was never what we were back channeling in. We were back channeling in, let's open up a dialogue, ministerial level's fine, uh, deputy minister's level's fine, let's start the dialogue. What we were hoping was that if we could open up a communication and have the face-to-face and lead to an exchange of information about why so many Canadians believe that what the government was doing was fundamentally wrong. And remember, at this point, most G7 countries were not respecting their citizens from flying or getting on planes and ships like Canada was, the unvaccinated. So that's what was our plan. And then if we could open up the dialogue, then maybe we would bring in the medical doctors and the other experts and say, all right, you, you, you say you're following the science show us your science and we have these other experts that are truly qualified medical experts as well. We'll show their science. Like let's have a reasoned discussion. So I just wanted you to understand that detail that there was never a, um, a hard proposition put that we had to meet with the prime minister or else. I think you can appreciate anyone that heard the prime minister say to them that they're racists and misogynists and extremists you know you know those are the words that he's calling you so to sit down and at a meeting you're you're kind of starting 10 steps backwards when you're meeting with somebody that can espouse those views and not that he's just anyone in the country but he's meant to be the leader of Canada uh your your prime minister so i think that that probably had a lot to do at least for myself, um, you know, when you want, you're going to sit down with somebody, you'd rather sit down with somebody that isn't viewing you from 
up above from their cloud and, and with their nose turned down on you. So um, I just wanted to add that little point. You know, Abe, I was that, that kind of interesting because I did want to talk about that because the POEC report actually touches upon that. Um, his comments about the fringe minority, the, you know, the racist, the misogynist. But when you read the report, the Rouleau, Justice Rouleau gives him almost a pass. He's like, well, he said that, but he almost only meant a fraction. And I, I read that and then I reread this, the prime minister's statement. And I'm like, I do not know how you can come to that conclusion. What are your thoughts? I am so disappointed in our prime minister that he uses this kind of hateful and divisive rhetoric on Canadians. Uh, that is not a sign of a leader. That is a, a sign of a coward uh, because he doesn't know how else to hold on to power. And that is his go-to move. And we've seen this for a long time. What I've now experienced, because I've been a little bit more in the limelight, the public light, is how incredibly divisive and harmful other Canadians are to fellow Canadians because their leader, Mr. Justin Trudeau, is a shining example of how to treat people. Call them names, divide and conquer. And I've experienced it myself. And I just think it is incredibly wrong. And at a minimum, that should have been called out because it wasn't just minor names like goofball <laughs> he was calling people extremists he was suggesting just last week Jagmeet Singh said that they were overthrowing the government these are serious crimes that they're and Justin Trudeau said that the the, the words of some of the protesters were killing people these are not just little name calling these are serious allegations and not only that they're crimes it's a crime to commit terrorism it's a crime to kill others you cannot use those word light words lightly and they've really gone um they've had it easy they've gotten away with too much with this this campaign they've been on and it's only hurting canadians and that that to me is very very unfortunate one other very interesting point that I noticed through all of this was the difference in coverage between our mainstream media and international media. We had a huge black eye and it just got worse. I mean, we ended up with two black eyes and a bloody nose. Uh, I mean, you got Tucker Carlson saying, geez, maybe we should send some forces up there and take Canada back for Canadians. And, and I mean, he was saying it in, in, if you know Tucker at all, you know, that's the way he talks and, and he gets it going. But we took a huge, huge hit on the international stage. This guy is now, I mean, he's not even got fancy socks anymore. Nobody cares what he says or what he does. And we got a long way to climb back up out of that hole. I'm a little bit heartbroken. So I've just started like pouring through this report um, on my own in earnest. But I mean, when you look at the report, there's glaring inconsistencies um, contained within it that give me huge concerns um, as to, you know, how accurate the information that the commission received was. Like, I mean, it says here the Privy Council office um, began monitoring the convoy around January 24th. 
But then when you go down further in the report, it says that the Privy Council office got their first report on the convoy on January 21st. And then, you know, further in the report, it says Justin Trudeau received his first briefing on January 26th. Um, But then it also says that the RCMP didn't give any briefings and the National um, Security Intelligence Agency was concerned because they hadn't got any RCMP reports by January 30th. Right. So, I mean, when you start to actually go through this and, and try to make a timeline, it it's really problematic. Um, but I mean, it, it almost seems like this report. Um, what can I say? It, it's like the I mean, it's obvious that they didn't have a good handle on what information was coming in when that it wasn't well documented that there was no communication between the different intelligence agencies um and like i said the the report in itself has conflicts within it um but i mean it's just sort of like you know is this incompetence the fault of protesters it's really hard to you know to draw that conclusion going through this with a fine tooth comb and, and, you know, actually putting all the dates together. Um, There's every indication that the Privy Council office knew and was um, got a briefing on January 21st. So am I buying that they didn't know that the convoy was coming and staying until that first weekend when they got a, um, you know, when they saw a press conference by convoy organizers? Like, I, I just, I don't, I can't buy that. Right. There's nothing that you can do that would sell me um, on that story. And that's the story that they're using basically is, you know, well, well, we didn't know. Um, so we weren't prepared for a protest of this magnitude. And so we had to, to take this this action and that's being justified. And um, but it just, you know, it, when like I said, when you start to actually look at the dates of the briefings and, and all the details, it, it none of it makes any sense. There's every indication that they knew at least on January 21st that this protest was coming, that it was happening. Um, they should have been preparing themselves. Like I said, MPs were seeing my information. I know that um, and we're aware. So, I mean, you know, for Justice Rouleau to make a ruling that basically, you know, incompetence forced them into invoking the emergencies act is it's a really hard pill to swallow when you actually go through all all the hundreds of pages of of information yeah you know when i was reading the poec like i've only read unfortunately volume one it's it's a lot to unpack but even reading the summary you know you're reading they talk about the harm to the ottawa citizens and you know he kind of goes over defacing of statues and when you dig into that, what was defacing statues? It was putting a Canadian flag over a Terry Fox statue. I mean, the embellishments there were, in my mind, egregious. And then when you read about the how he describes the organizers, well, he kind of goes into cons- that they're conspiracy theorists, and he nowhere touches on that they were trying to exercise their rights for bodily autonomy. He doesn't touch upon that. He doesn't touch about their charter rights anywhere in this report. And I find that that's the most appalling part of this report. Well, I mean, my overall take on this is that he talks about uh, in the report that he felt, Mr. Rouleau felt that the high legal threshold was met. But then he goes on to say on, page 211 of volume one that I do not come to this conclusion easily 
as I do not consider the factual basis for it to be overwhelming, and I acknowledge that there is significant strengths to the arguments against reaching it. Well, let's do a little bit of first-year law school here, shall we? If a legal test exists, and they exist all over the place in every statute for every, uh, everything you can think of, as well as at common law and, and tort law, there's always you know, a three-part test or a two-part test or a five-part test. Um, those tests are like empty boxes, and you fill them with facts. And it's only if the facts are present and each one of the boxes can be filled with the facts that you meet the test. The test doesn't exist in itself, the legal element. So for him on the one hand to say that the high legal threshold is met, but then on the other, the factual basis uh, is not overwhelming. Uh, that just says it all. I, I, what I really think has happened here especially when I look, what's the total page count? Does anybody have that? I mean, uh, the first two volumes. Over 2,000. Yeah, so like here, we all know the drill, right? If I want someone to read a letter, and Jerry will confirm this with his experience as a cabinet minister, keep it to a page. If you don't want someone to read it, make it a 20-page letter because they're not going to read it. It's too long. Well, if you don't want someone to read it, a report, make it 2,000 pages. And if someone's brave enough to go through it, put so much junk in there that their head starts to spin. They bounce from one thing to another. Oh, I thought you said this here. Oh, you're saying it different over there. I think there were several authors to this report, as I would expect. One person can't pump this out in the time frame that they had when you consider the conclusion of the deadline for our written submissions, uh, written closing arguments. And uh, I think there's just a ton of smoke and mirrors in here. And at the end of the day, Rouleau was appointed for a reason. His, there's all this controversy uh, swirling around uh, genealogy. I'm uninterested in what any family relationships may or may not exist. What we all know is a point of fact that's not in dispute is that uh, Mr. Rouleau has extensive ties deep into the Liberal Party, that he was the chief of staff to Prime Minister Turner, that he served in very other high positions, both within the party and in Liberal governments. And, you know, he wasn't picked because his last name starts with an R. He was picked because of his, uh, his ties to the Liberals. His job, he probably thought, was to save the Prime Minister and the Liberal Party's political ass. And frankly, I think the government's overplayed their hand. I think uh, more people are going to be upset by this report than they are going to be comforted by it. Just one other point on these legal measures or legal tests that need to be met. The biggest one that was completely overlooked, as far as I'm concerned, is the accountability and transparency to Parliament itself. There's a complete list of procedures and protocols that need to be followed in order to enact this type of thing. And I don't think any of that level was met. Really interesting. And I didn't know this myself. So I'm just reading about this CBSA, so the, the Border Services Agency. And so it says the first intelligent alert generated by the CBSA related to the planning of a protest in Coots was sent on January 25th. This is before I heard of it, certainly. Um, this also indicates that, I mean, it's it just, when you look at going through this report, um, they don't start, the government officials don't start quoting border process for the most part until February 8th is when they're bringing up 
um, concerns uh, related to the border. And the CSIS director, David Vignon, said um, on February 8th, I believe he gave a briefing um, on, on the risk to uh, border protests and, and closing the border. And that was sort of what was the driving force and momentum between, um, you know, the government invoking the Emergencies Act. Um, or that was the rationale that they used. But I mean, when you go through the report, it says that they were alerted to this on January 25th. I mean, the, the convoy wasn't even in Ottawa then, right? Um, and it says that the CBSA reports were circulated hourly. So, I mean, you know, it's it, like I said, it's when you start to actually pull this report apart and, and somebody's going to have to do it. And unfortunately, maybe that somebody's going to be me and Keith and Eva and all of us in this room because, you know, MSM isn't going to do it. They're going to just say, well, you know, it was justified. But when you actually start deconstructing it, it it's really fascinating to see, um, you know, because the things that are being put out, the rationale, um, and part of the rationale was the border protests. Um, you know, the government was alerted to that, um, you know, before the convoy was even in Ottawa. So I have a huge issue when them, with them saying that they weren't prepared and that that was the emergency situation that, that you know, was sort of presented to um, them and, and part of the rationale for why they had to invoke the act when they were well aware of it um, weeks before it, it actually manifested itself. That's a huge red flag to me. One thing that you know, really, one of the holes that really bugged me about this report, especially in the summary report, is it doesn't actually talk about the intent of the federal government. Um, you know, there was evidence pre presented by Marco Mendocino's office where staffers write and they want to label this protest akin to January 6th. And they go on to say that they don't want to come down too hard because they don't want to push down the crazies. And, you know, prior to Christmas break, Blacklock's reports that Marco Mendocino may have perjured himself as internal memos released prior to the Christmas break contradict Marco Mendocino's testimony. As per Blacklock's internal memos acknowledged the Freedom Convoy was not a national security threat. My question to you, Keith, is it almost seems like this, this report ignores that evidence. It doesn't speak to the good faith of the federal government. I was wondering if you could comment on that. Well, and we saw, I, I, I'm with you now, thank you. And we, we were following, we subscribed to Black Locks and we were been, been uh, you know, it was part of our morning routine when we get ready for the inquiry each day was to see if what gems they might've found on any given day because they were finding often uh, two, you know, they'd have at least two stories a day that were relevant. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we found when we were going through the tens of thousands of pages of records to the extent they weren't redacted and to the extent they were disclosed in time for us to review it, because that was another problem. We were getting uh, document dumps, uh, you know, constantly throughout the inquiry when those federal documents were supposed to have been disclosed back in July. But uh, was the early planning and the narrative creation that they identified Mendocino's office and some other uh, ministers' offices, political staffers, the whole narrative of, of characterizing everybody as extremists, as white supremacists, uh, you know, Nazis, and remarkably, uh, and that was even before the convoy arrived, Brendan Miller cross-examined a number of the government witnesses on those handwritten notes where it was clear that they were trying to uh, to affirm a narrative 
stick with the narrative and push that narrative out to the legacy media. And very early on, the legacy media grabbed onto that narrative and ran with it. So, uh, no, there wasn't good faith. Uh, they were clearly trying to malign uh, rather than work with uh, Canadians who were deeply concerned, rather than have a respectful Canadian dialogue and see where we could find common ground. They had no interest in that. It was vilify. Uh, and, and whether that direction was set by the prime minister through his cabinet, I don't know or whether it was widely held by the cabinet as well. But clearly their mission was to vilify uh, the protesters, paint them in the most negative light possible, you know, contrary to what they do with other protesters who are uh, advocating more left-wing causes. So that was the reality we faced. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Opposition with Dan Knight. We hope you found this discussion on the aftermath of the Freedom Convoy protest informative and thought-provoking. Stay tuned for the second part of our two-part series, where we will continue to explore the implications of the POEC report and the future of Canadian democracy. You can find this episode and more on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more insightful conversations on Canadian politics.